Good morning. I am here to read the passage. I got my Bible out, so get your Bibles out. Um, We will be reading Philippians 3 from verse 1 till 11. So here we go. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's Word. So this morning, we are continuing our series in Philippians, obviously. And as we do, this is a passage in which Paul says, this is a warning to you. It's it's what you call a warning passage. And as I was trying to think of what this is actually like, Nora actually helped me come up with a story of what this is like. Because I was like, hey, is there a story where, because she reads a lot, is there a story where the main character is being warned over and over about something? And she she brought up this this really great moment in The Hobbit, which is a kid's book, which is a great book, uh, where there's this Hobbit main character, Bilbo, has these dwarves that are going, that kind of, get him to go on this big quest with the wizard Gandalf, and they're supposed to go all over these mountains and through these forests to finally get to the city that's under a mountain, the Lonely Mountain, where underneath it is all of this treasure of all of their people, and they're going to liberate both the treasure and the city from this dragon. But along the way, there's all of these scary things that happen, and eventually they come to this moment where they've seen trolls and orcs and goblins, and all of these things have happened to them, and they're, you know, pretty scared. They come across this bear slash man, one of the best characters in the whole Tolkien universe. But they, they set out finally for one of these, like, kind of final passages or, you know, two-thirds of the way through, And they're told that the only safe route to go, the only possible route to go is through this forest, Mirkwood Forest. It's a great, great name. That's the forest where Legolas is from. Some of y'all are into Legolas or were 12 years ago. He's a handsome fellow. Anyway, 
As they set out, the Bayarn, the, the bear man, tells them, all right, if you go that way, make sure you don't leave the path. You can't get off the path at all through the forest, and you have to send the ponies back to me. So you're like, okay. You turn the page over, you read, continue reading the story, and, and Gandalf goes to the dwarfs and the hobbits, and he says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to keep my horse. You get rid of your ponies. I'm going to keep my horse. I'm going to go somewhere else. But make sure you don't leave the path and you release the ponies. But they keep going, and Gandalf goes with them, and they finally get to the, to the gate, and Gandalf says, goodbye to you all, goodbye. And he tells them, straight through the forest is your way now. Don't stray off the track. If you do, it is a thousand to one, you will never find it again, and never get out of Mirkwood, and then I don't suppose I nor anyone else will ever see you again. So he gives the warning a little bit more intensity. He says, look, goodbye, but if you get off, thousand to one, you're never going to be seen of or heard from again. Then there's some chats. Bilbo says, oh, do I really have to go through the forest? Do I really have to go? Gandalf says, yes. And then he tells them this, stick to the forest track, keep your spirits up, hope for the best, and with a tremendous slice of luck, you may come out of it one day. And see the long marshes lying before you, the swamp. And beyond them, a high on the east, the lonely mountain where dear old Smog lives. And though I hope he is not expecting you. So now he says, stick to the forest track, keep your spirits up, go forward. Maybe with a tremendous amount of luck, even staying on the path, uh, you might get out and maybe the dragon's not waiting for you. And that'll be good. Then Thorin, great Thorin, says, that's very comforting to be sure. Great British sarcasm. He says, goodbye. If you won't come with us, you had better get off with it and no more talk because they're getting scared. Stop warning us. Then Gandalf says, goodbye then. Really, goodbye, said Gandalf. I like it how he says goodbye, really goodbye. We could probably use that vernacular with us. As a community, often we say goodbye, then we stand around, we talk some more, and then you have to say goodbye, really goodbye. But just like us, Gandalf doesn't actually leave. So he turns his horse and he rides down into the west. But he could not resist the temptation to have the last word. Before he had passed quite out of hearing, he turned and put his hand to his mouth and he called to them. And they heard his voice come faintly. Goodbye. Be good. Take care of yourselves. And then one of the only times and Tolkien uses all caps, he says, don't leave the path. And that's the end. And then they go into the forest. And like all good stories where there's this sort of warning, whether it's Macbeth has a similar thing. I just wasn't sure all of us read a lot of Macbeth. But just like any story where there's lots of warning, the people don't you know, listen to the warning. They get off the path. And you're left kind of wondering, like in The Hobbit, this is, everything I read is really over three pages. Regardless of how you format it, it's about three pages. It's over and over again. You're like, Oz, is Gandalf insane? Is he losing it? Is he slipping? Is Tolkien think that the reader is an idiot? All of these different things. No, he keeps repeating the danger over and over because the danger to them was substantial and real. That they might not be heard of or seen from ever again if they divert from this path. And then at the same time, he's saying, I really care about, I would like to see you again. 
I would like for you to actually finish this journey, finish this adventure. So he, he calls them over and over again to this warning, which is, I think, what Paul is, is doing here in this passage. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says this uh, verse one, he says, it's no trouble for me to write to you the same thing over and over again. It's no trouble. Why? Because this is a safeguard for you. Paul is saying, I need to warn you about something, and I'm going to keep telling you these things over and over again because the danger to you is substantial. It's a danger for your very soul, for your life. Watch out. You are not treading through this nice, you know, happy forest, but there is something that, that poses a grave, you know, clear and present danger to who you are. Paul's saying, I'm repeating myself so that you can be protected against this thing. And what is the warning that he has for them? What is the warning that he has for us? If you keep reading, he says, watch out in verse two. Watch out for what? He says, for these dogs. No matter, there's not any cultural context where being called a dog is a positive thing. That's what my education has taught me. Watch out for these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. That's pretty intense, I think, at least. Who, what is he talking about, these mutilators of the flesh? He's talking about these people that existed at that time who were going around saying, yeah, yeah, you can believe in Jesus and you can believe in all of these things. That's really good, but don't you know there's more to do? There's more to prove, there's more to show. You have to do some stuff with the flesh. Like you actually have to show it. You, you have to, there's something that you can do. There's something that you can propose, like that you can actually portray to the world around you that will somehow prove to us and everyone else who you are and if you're a blessed child of God. It's this black and white thing. Paul is saying, look, there's people out there who will tell you that you have to do something. You have to show something. You have to act in a certain way and you have to display yourself to others to be counted as worthy, like significant. Uh, and he's saying, this isn't just wrong, this is harmful. So the, the Jewish historic kind of moment that they're in is this concept of a Jewish conversion circumcision process where anybody, you could become Jewish if you wanted to, all you have to do is a few things. And there's shorthand, anytime you see circumcision, it's shorthand for a much bigger package of things to take in. So the first part of the package is you need to have a good heritage and genealogy, where you can like point back into your history and say, well, I'm from this town, these are the people I know, I was surrounded by all of these people, and so yeah, I can you know, speak to this. Kind of like I have my own sort of heritage genealogy story with my fandom of the Lakers. Because I know there's people out there who are just bandwagon folks, and I don't want to be a bandwagon person. So I tell them my long story every time. Well, when I was 10 years old, I lived in Portugal. I was taller than everyone else. I started to play basketball. Shaquille O'Neal was my favorite player. Inside, this, inside stuff with Ahmad Rashad was my favorite TV show, and Shaquille O'Neal was on it all the time as a Laker. So I became a Laker fan. Don't worry. I've been one for 20-something years, right? But it's an appeal to that. 
Like, look, don't you see? So that's, that's something you had to say. Look, no, no, I've been in a Jewish place. I really have, have really absorbed it all. Don't you see I'm really Jewish? I can be Jewish. I can be part of the loved, worthy people of God. Then there's an actual circumcision where you would actually need to change your flesh. And then you would also need to have this identity built around keeping the law. So all of this, what this meant was you had to to be worthy, to be blessed, to be in, to be on the group, the people that God, you know, chosen people. What you needed to do was you needed to be born of the right stock heritage family. Then you would have needed somebody to do the right thing to you. So like circumcision for a child, like the baby isn't saying, hey, I really want to follow Yahweh. Make sure you circumcise me. No, you would need to have the proper people do something to you so that you could be in on it. And then after all that, you needed to behave. You needed to pray. You need to give to the poor. You need to be faithful to your spouse if you have one. You needed to take care of your kids if you have them. You needed to do all of the stuff of Proverbs and be a wise, good, like moral person. You need to do all of those things, have that working for you, and then you will know you are worthy of being called a child promised one of God. That's what he's talking about. Still seems a little harsh to call these people dogs. I don't know. Because what he's saying is, look, what they're saying is you have to do things, you have to act a certain way, you have to display yourself to prove who you are. Uh, We do this similar things, right? Not just with the Lakers. We ask people, where are you from? Where did you go to school? Where do you work? How do you live as like a good citizen? You know, like, do you recycle? Did you hand out good candy or was it bad candy? Did you bring Trader Joe's candy or did you bring name brand candy from Mars Company? Like, these are the questions, right? Are you a good citizen? And then also, what are you doing right, ethically, like around you? Are you on the right side of history, the wrong side of history? Like you need to do all of those things. And here's what, is that actually that bad? That's what I think. Like, is this a really bad thing? Uh, People behaving? I don't know. Maybe we could do with more people behaving, not less, right? Um, Maybe we could get more people to do the right thing. Have them read more Aesop fables, you know? Uh, that would seem beneficial. Maybe it seems like it would be nice to have more nice people or to get people to do more good things. Like maybe we should incentivize that a little bit more. And maybe there's no greater incentive than saying, hey, do you want to be in the special golden ring of honor over here? It's reserved for the people who do the right thing all the time. I mean, that seems like a high motivator, Is it really that bad to keep people from doing bad things by offering them this good way in? It's motivating to have a ladder to climb, right? It's one of the big challenges that our current economy is struggling with is because we've tried to make every organization flat. You know, we're all the same, we're all equal, but then that's not very motivating because it's like, I want to get on the top, right? If we're all equal, then I'm already at the top, but I'm also next to Joe and Susan and I want to be better than them, right? It's motivating to even build an image. Is it really bad to have people have to, you know, exist with a reputation to hold up? You know, it seems like that could be good. Helps us keep striving, pursuing, being better. 
After all, aren't we on this like progressive journey towards being better and better each generation after the next so that we can look back and we can say, I can't believe my grandparents believed in that, eating ham out of a can. We are better people, right? Is it really that bad to be pursuing more and better? But then Paul says in verse four, he's like, it is that bad because I've tried it. That's what he says. And I succeeded at it. This is what he says. He says, if anyone thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, this big idea of doing the right thing and displaying the right thing, he says, if you have confidence in that, I have more. He's like, I'm better than you. Great confidence. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Exactly what you're supposed to do. He says, I was born of the people of Israel. Like I am like born into this thing. Not just of Israel, but also the tribe of Benjamin. You know, the tribe where the king come from. That's me. I am born deep into this. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the leader of leaders. I am the like perfect example. Like that's how rich and strong my heritage is. It's like being from the house of Windsor. It's like all of those people are as English as you can be, right? There's no greater, I guess not anymore. Megan is South LA, but the rest of the people, She's like, he's saying, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And then he goes, so he's got the heritage thing down. The right stuff was done to him from his parents because they're good parents. So he's like, look, you can look back. Grandpa was good. My parents were good. Great grandma, they're all good. And I'm part of that, in on it. I can trace myself all the way back to Jacob. That's what he means with like, born of Israel. Then he says, in regard to the law, the obedient stuff, I was a Pharisee, meaning that he was an expert in not just like the law, but also had a passion to follow the law himself. So it's not just like he knew the rules, but he also liked following the rules. So he had like the proper motivation. And he had this, the Pharisees had this view and this belief that if they could get everybody to follow the rules, follow the rules that are all pointed towards loving God, loving your neighbor. Like they wanted that. If we could just, you know, they thought if we could just organize society in such a way and be examples for people, we could actually show God how much we love him. That's what a Pharisee, a lot of times they get a bad rap because of, you know, they didn't like Jesus, but that's who they were. And he's saying, I was a Pharisee with the, with the law. That's how I treated it. Pretty impressive. As for zeal, like passion, buy-in, was I a diehard? Yes, I was. I persecuted the church, saying that there's these, you know, throughout all of history, there's these different things that pop up, and there's these weird things that people believe, and I tried to squash it. That's how passionate I am. I wasn't a silent objector. I wasn't, you know, sitting on the sidelines. I actually attacked and participated in pushing back against this false thing. I protested. I was out there with stones in my hand. That's how much I believed in this stuff. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, like being a good person based on following the laws, I'm faultless. He did it all. He's saying, I had the right heritage. 
I didn't cheat. I did it the right way. I didn't cut corners. I didn't sleep around. I didn't slack off. I was committed. I was passionate. He's saying, if anybody could put confidence in that stuff, it's me. I could put more confidence than any of you in that stuff. And then he he essentially says, and it stinks. I did all of that, and it doesn't lead to freedom. It doesn't lead to belonging. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to being able to rest at ease. It leads away from it. He, He goes, these are the words. He's like, count it loss. All of that stuff, I consider it a loss. He says, it's garbage. I consider it garbage. Why? You're always one step away from being excluded. It's exhausting. What if you don't pick up the stone right away and know who to throw it at? What if somehow you misplace your step? I know there's this popular documentary called Happy Shiny People, right? I haven't watched it because I think it'll be too unnerving. But I know what it's about because I have relatives who like lived into that thing, which it's essentially about American fundamentalism where you have these little subgroups of American Christianity that have created so many rules and regulations. Like they have pictures of how women should dress. They don't have pictures on how men should dress. It's that kind of thing, right? And it's all, there's these umbrellas that are all involved. But the purpose of it and the idea and the motivation is you need to Dress the white way. When you show up, you all need to look happy and good and wonderful so then everybody else will look to you and say, oh, I wish I could be like that family, the Millers. They're so wonderful. Look how beautiful they are, right? But the the whole purpose is to make sure that you follow the things correctly. Maybe if you are really into, you know, in your memory, freshman high school English, Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, about this society that's really everyone's living in this fear of being found out as not perfect. The main character says when she kind of gets out of it, she's like, I didn't know the weight of all of that legalism until I left. I didn't know the weight until I felt the freedom. It's that kind of thing. There's always more to do There's always more to keep up with. There's always new laws that get introduced. There's more ways to prove yourself. Every year, it keeps getting added. And Paul essentially, right here in these words, is describing his deconversion story. He says, I'm done with it. I did it the best, and I'm I'm out. I don't want to be part of that. And so some of you are thinking, yeah, I know like legalistic life, fundamentalism, whatever word you want to put on it, I should get rid of it too, right? Yes, please, yes. Deconstruct a faith that is so feeble it can get undone at a ballot box. Like if, if, if you have put all of your confidence in a faith that if somebody else gets elected, the whole thing is destroyed, then that faith, you should tear that faith down. You should get deconverted from a religion that places all of your value, all of your intrinsic self-worth on how well you were able to abstain when you were a teenager. Like if that's, oh, that's who God is, if that's all he cares about, if that's the faith that you have, like deconvert from that. Abandon the weight of a God who is only looking at you to see, do you look good? Do you look happy? 
If that is your God, Paul is saying, that's garbage. It's garbage. If you have heard over and over again this watered-down version of the gospel that diminishes the power and the love of Christ to just this thing where what's elevated is your work, your effort, your proving of yourself, your heritage, all of those things, tear it down because it's not helping. It's harming. That's why Paul says, these dogs, these mutilators of the body, here's the warning for you, right? It's harming, not helping. But also, so if you deconvert, great success to me from legalism. But here's the warning. You can trade a religious fundamentalism for a new one, like a rebranded, reshaped, cool-looking one. You can rebuild a legalism, I'll just call secular fundamentalism, that also that sounds the same as the religious version. It sounds like us versus them. There's good people who think the good way and act the right way and post the right post, and then there's the bad people who do the opposite. It feels the same way, where you have to appeal where you're from or what your background is, or who your friends are. It's like, I can speak to this issue. I have a friend who once was homeless, right? You can say, like, you have to appeal to your heritage, or I can talk about this because I live in South LA, so I can speak to this. It sounds the same way as religious legalism. Who you're connected to, there's an emphasis on ideological purity, meaning if you disagree at one moment, you're out. You have to have this pure ideological view towards everything. There is no such thing as a minor disagreement because everything is significant and everything falls underneath the most important, the most urgent. And if you're on the wrong side of that, you're on the wrong side. Who you are, like your identity, is just like the religious version. It's tied to what you do. It's tied to how passionately you believe those things. It also feels the same way. It doesn't just sound the same way. It feels the same way. It feels like you could get kicked out at the slightest misstep. You hear people say, or maybe you say out of your own mouth, hey, do better, be better. Like a literal phrase, right? We, I see it all the time. This person really messed up. At the end, be better, do better. Lastly, it gets lived out the exact same way with secret hypocrisy, with hiding, with fear. Not of like God, but of a mob, fear of not belonging anymore. And essentially, the results are the same, which Paul talks about here in contrast to to the, the life that he's leaving behind and the life that he's pursuing in the future. He's saying the life behind is death. Whether you're in legalistic, religious fundamentalism, or some legalistic, secular fundamentalism, I knew I wasn't going to be able to say all those words. It all leads to death, destroyed, mutilated life, abandoned. Life, a shell of what it was created for. Like like the, the miraculous reality of a universe like ours, a planet like ours, where all of these things can live and where humans can live and think rationally and relate to one another, surely God didn't create all of that for us to hide to prove who we are. 
So Paul is saying this is not acute misunderstanding. This isn't good intentions gotten out of hand. He's, he's accurately saying this is evil. This is a mutilation of life. We could just pause and grieve the reality of the ruined lives by legalism. Like it's that kind of sad thing. We can grieve the lost years that we've had where we're like, oh, I just committed myself to trying to perform the right way so that other people would say I'm valuable enough. Leo Tolstoy wrote a great book, many great books. Uh, But in one of them, he created this character, Levin, Constantine, with a K. Anyway, Russia, right? Anyway, this character, he's the best character. He has an internal moral compass that's incredible. He wants to always do the right thing. He even pushes back against the you know, the the system of Russia at the time with the aristocracy, even though he's part of the aristocracy. He he kind of abandons the city for the fields. He, you know, builds this whole um, estate and he takes care of it. He comes up with this scheme so that the the peasants could somehow become owners of the crops and things like that because trying to tear everything down. And he thought through all of the right ways to act and he had this intense like ethical drive, uh, but he had no like faith in anything. He talks in, in the early parts of the book of he attempts to go and see something special in communion, but he can't. He just sees bread and wine, and so he walks away. Uh, he gets married to the love of his life that he's pursued, you know, for chapter after chapter. It's a long book. He has a child. He wants to feel a certain way. All he can feel is, I better do the right thing with this child. I better not mess it up. But then his brother dies in essentially like a brothel somewhere. And he goes and he watches his brother breathe his last breath. And that's when he realizes that for all of his life, he's been trying to figure out, is God worth trusting when I die? And then he comes to this haunting realization that he has no one to trust in while he's alive. And this is what he says in his radical kind of conversion at the end. He says, without knowing what I am and why I'm here, he says, life is impossible and that I cannot know and so I cannot live. This is like the agony of his doubt. The reason I I bring that up is, is that a human has to know who it is. Like you have to know who you are, and why you are here. And without knowing that, life is impossible. Living is impossible. And just like Levin shows us, you cannot find yourself and who you are through a following of rules and an ethic and a morality. You cannot find who you are by knowing who you aren't. You know, like, I'm not those people, thank God. That doesn't help you know who you are. Constantine lived his whole life. I'm glad I'm not those people partying all the time. I'm a good person. You can't live under the pursuit of doing the right thing to prove to other people you're the right person. So Paul says, this is all loss. 
And he looks to it all, and in his, this is what it comes out of his deconversion. His reconstruction is this. Verse 7, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I just, just to point out, he's still repetitive. Like the warning's repetitive, but also the hope is repetitive. It's loss. I consider this stuff loss. I don't consider it anything. It is loss. Then he keeps going. I consider them garbage. Why? That I might gain Christ. That I might be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from me following the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God that is a basis of faith. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He says, look, this whole system of like finding out who you are by what you do is broken. And so he says, I count it all nothing. That's another, you know, maybe your translation. I count it all nothing. As if it doesn't exist. Like as if it's vapor. Like a a concept that you can't even process. I consider it like that compared to knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus, Jesus who was strong. Like able. Like the... So much in life, we think through who can handle this situation? Like who can hold it? Who can be steadfast enough and steady enough? Who could do such a thing like that? Jesus is strong, like powerful. In all of the good ways, Andy Crouch wrote this really great book on power, like reclaiming power, because he describes power as the ability to affect change for the good of others. So misplaced powers when we, you know, affect change for the good of ourselves. What does Jesus do? He's so powerful in all of the good ways. Jesus is kind. Paul says, I want to know the kindness, the gentleness, the mercy, and the compassion of God. Jesus is a genius ethicist. All of the law, all of the things He basically summarizes in this golden rule that even now ethicists in every university will point back to and say, that's the most genius. Love your neighbor as you want to be loved. I mean, that is brilliant. I don't know if we've kind of accepted that as like a good, cool thing, but it is like, go compare it to other ethos. Like it's it's crazy. He's a genius in how to live. He's a poet and a masterful masterful storyteller. But instead, Jesus doesn't tell these stories like any other storyteller, where there's this virtue that you're supposed to get in on and start acting on. All of the parables that Jesus tells are about his kingdom, what he is like, and how you can just come and be part of it. Like a feast where there's invitations for you to come. Or like a father that runs to the son. Like, that's the stories he tells. Jesus is a healer, repairing all of the broken, hard things. 
Jesus is a savior. His name means to save people from sins and going to the cross, dying and bleeding. He cries out, you know, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then Jesus is alive, raised to abundant, full, victorious life, where all he has remaining is a few scars so that we can put our hands into them and know, yes, he has passed through the darkest for our life. And so Paul says, I want to know him. Like, that's it. Everything else is trash compared to knowing this Savior, this Christ. And he says, I'm putting everything behind. This is a little bit of next week, but I'm putting everything out there so that I can know him. I'm going to leave all of this other stuff behind so that I can know Christ and that I can be found in him. We try to find ourselves, go on quests, internal journeys of discovering the true authentic self. And Paul says, I'm trying to find myself in Christ where you know you can look at it this way I come from a mess I come from a broken family I don't know who I am or where I'm from I don't want to go back I'm here as an orphan like I'm all of that but what Paul is saying is my heritage now my genealogy now begins with the life and the death and the resurrection that's my origin story I've been found in Christ so now he gets to proclaim If anyone has confidence, not in the flesh, but in the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, that's his inheritance. And then he says, not a righteousness of my own that comes from doing the law. And he's already said, I did it faultlessly impressive. He's saying, no, I'm clinging to a righteousness that's through faith in Jesus. Like he lived a whole life. I'm not looking to my own resume anymore. I'm looking to an unchangeable resume of Christ. How do I get in on that resume? How does that get extended to me? By belief, by faith. He says, I want to know Christ, know the power of resurrection. I want God to raise my life that's been given to all of these laws and following and trying to prove myself. I want that life to be raised with Christ. So that's the danger that you might get off the path like uh, Bilbo and his friends who wander around. It's pretty comedic. Just wandering around in the forest. How do you make sure you don't like fall into this danger? What is the safeguard to this real danger? Paul tells us in the first verse, so this could have been shorter. He says, but you wouldn't have cared. Now you care. He says in 3.1, he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to tell you this over and over again. This is Gandalf saying, stay on the path. But Paul is saying, rejoice, rejoice, say it again. He even says it in verse three, we're the people who get to boast in Christ put our confidence and celebrate it and like wave it all around. Like, oh, but Jesus is who I find my identity in, who I find my significance in. He calls me worthy because he is worthy. There's this uh, thing that happened last year in December. It's called the World Cup. It's where people play soccer from all over the world. 
it's a really big deal. And this past year, Argentina won. I don't know if these are facts that everybody's aware of. Anyway, Argentina won. It had been since 1986 that they had won the World Cup. Lots of like terrible moments where they didn't win. Argentina's a chaotic, mostly poor country. There's not a lot to like cling to often of like, we're really doing great. But they won the World Cup. And Messi, who is, you know, great soccer player from Miami, won the World Cup, sort of the culmination of one of the greatest players to ever play. People talk about, oh, did he score the most goals, all those other things. But it's been said recently, which player has brought the most joy to the most people, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. But it's messy. He has. And what happened is, is they won the World Cup in Qatar, and they took the trophy, and all of the players got on a plane and went back to Buenos Aires, where they would walk around. And this is the scene. You want to show? Like, this is the people. Every single person in the entire city, like they gave the population numbers, there were more people in the streets than live in Buenos Aires. So people came from like villages and towns and they flooded it and they climbed up these structures. It was dangerous. People lost their lives so that they could celebrate that like, hey, we've never won and now we have. Like, ridiculous. There's photos that are hilarious of children that see Messi from like hundreds of miles away and start weeping and crying because they're just so happy that they saw the trophy and the team. People are like climbing up on it. It's insane, right? How much more for us who aren't celebrating a wonderful achievement on a soccer field but have been embraced and pursued by the God who created all things. We haven't just been introduced to a famous player, but we've been brought into union with Jesus. Like there's an aspect in which if all of Jesus just simply, you know, revealed who God was to us, and that was the end of the story, there's a sense which that would be worth praising God for for centuries, But what's happened instead is not only did we get introduced to who God is through Jesus, but we got brought into union with him and we can find our identity within his salvation and his grace and his mercy. So how much more joy for us who get to taste the power of the resurrection over death itself. So what is the safeguard against legalism that destroys? It's worship, praise, joy, boasting in Christ. And through that, your soul will be guarded. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we celebrate like you are really good. Uh, and we want to know you. We want to know the power of your resurrection. Uh, we want to even grow in belief and knowing that the people around us can know your resurrection could be raised to life. We pray and we grieve over the lives lost, the years lost, the months lost of following the law to the nth degree. Uh, and even in our city, I just, we're, we're like Paul uh, with secular fundamentalism. We're surrounded by people who've done it faultlessly, born of the right places, gone to the right schools, done everything correctly, And yet it's not leading to joy, it's leading to death. 
And God, I pray that we would be grieved and also hopeful that you raise dead lives to life. Help us protect our souls by rejoicing in you. Give us a bigger picture. I pray that your spirit, even in this response, would speak to us uh, and give us a greater picture of who you are, Jesus. That we would be you know, people that find who we are in you. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, amen.